It's funny, the Assyrians were mostly right. In fact, the Assyrians were, you could say, 99% right. All of those other gods and all those other places could not deliver. So they should have got, if they were wrong about one god and right about 99 of them, they should have got a 99%. They got a 99% and completely failed the final exam. Because they were wrong about the one god that mattered. The one god who was real. And God didn't use Ezekiel or rather, rather Hezekiah to teach them a lesson as he had done with David, with Goliath. No, God took this one personally. How dare they compare the one true God to all these other pretenders? And God wouldn't stand for it. And they would not stand. Well, here we are in church this morning. We're going we're gonna to be opening God's word together. And uh, what are we doing here? I mean... Actually, this is kind of a weird thing, isn't it? Now, if some of you are, who are older, if you're my age or older, which is old, okay, we'll own up to that. Might borrow Daryl's cane later. <coughs> we, we probably grew up in an environment where, <coughs> excuse me, going to church was fairly normal. Going to church was a common thing. Everybody around us went to a church somewhere, perhaps. It's not so much the case anymore. And you go to a lot of other places around the world today, and that's hardly the case at all. You could go to a lot of places through history, and it's hardly the case at all. When you come into the, into the New Testament, the first century, for many people, this thing that we do called church would be a very weird and different thing. Strange the things that Christians gathered and did. I mean, where else do you gather together and sing the way that we do, for instance? I'd like to just ask the, ask, ask the question, what are we doing here this morning? I mean, you could be watching football, for instance, as futile as that may end up being. What are we doing? You know, I like to start wedding ceremonies a different way than most people. I, I started doing this in it's my pattern now. I shouldn't tell you this because now it won't surprise you, but I'll go ahead. I start off not with the traditional, we're gathered here together today, but rather I ask the question, what are we doing here? What is this thing called marriage? That's really the point because we don't share the same assumptions any longer about that. Neither do we share the assumptions about this gathering together in this thing called church. We're going to start a three-week kind of a mini-series, a focus on what I call church essentials, where we're going to focus on one particular verse, what I think is Paul's nutshell, compact description of the essentials for a local church. What is a church? What should a church be about? The nature and task of a local church. When I say nutshell description, think about a nutshell, a compact description of the gospel. The essentials are there, but you really need to unpack it a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I delivered to you of first importance that which I also receive, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried. And he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, and he was seen. 
The death, burial, resurrection, and appearing of Jesus are the essentials of our Christian faith. That is the core of the gospel. And yet there's a whole lot packed in there that needs to be further opened up. Well, similarly, I think Paul gave to Timothy, and through Timothy to us, he gave us a compact, nutshell description of the nature and task, the identity and purpose of the local church. And it's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the center of that letter, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. We're going to back up to verse 14 just to take a little running start at it. But in the midst of all the things that Paul is expressing to Timothy, he tells them in the middle his purpose statement. Why is he writing this letter? In verse 14, he says, Timothy, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave, how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress or support of the truth. Those three phrases identify the essentials of a local church congregation. Now, I do understand this to be a local statement. It, it might be true for the church universally, but Paul intends it to be understood for a local con congregation, a congregation that he could come and visit. I hope to come to you soon. But in the meanwhile, how you conduct yourself within in the midst of this local assembly. That's Paul's focus. And it, it details an individual responsibility. The identity is going to point to particular activity. How to conduct oneself within the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support or buttress of the truth. And so we want to spend the next three weeks unpacking those three phrases. This week, I want to jump into the middle phrase, and we're going to align these three phrases to what we understand as a church to be the core essentials that we're going to participate in together. And that is gathering together, called out from the community at large, gathering together for worship of the one true God, to, to um, engage together as family, connected together in smaller groups, and to be equipped for the ministry that God has given us in and to the world. So that middle phrase that relates to our assembling together, the household of God, the family of God, is the church of the living God. Now first of all, a local congregation of those who believe and follow Jesus, a local congregation is called the church. You said, but I knew that. But where does the word church come from? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. Um, some suggest that it comes from the Old English chiricha. It kind of sounds like that, right? Which likely originates from a Greek word meaning of the Lord or from the Lord. The Lord is our source. Another possibility is it comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, kirke, which in turn comes from the Latin word for circus. Yeah, you, you identify with that one more, don't you? 
I can see how you would understand, you would, you would, you would easily align that the, that the church is somewhat related to a circus. It seems like that at times. I can see why you think there's a connection there. The original word in this verse for, that was translated for us as church, and the word used typically throughout the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia. It literally means a called out assembly. It comes from two words, one meaning out of ek, a Greek preposition, and the other is a Greek verb, to call. So it means to call out of, or when used as a noun, and in this case a plural noun, it refers to those who are the called out ones. A group called out of the surrounding whole. Now, a way that we would see that typically in everyday usage is in a general public assembly of citizens. Those who have a unique standing and purpose within the broader population at large. You see that actually in Acts chapter 19. Verses 39 and 40, there's a, there's a group of people that gather together in the theater at Ephesus. And you're thinking about that, the front of your bulletin actually has a photo of this place. Uh, we'll put that photo up here as well. This is the actual theater in Ephesus where this mob, not really a proper assembly, more of a mob, or actually I guess I should say a mostly peaceful protest, the mostly peaceful protest at Ephesus is not actually a lawful assembly as it should have been and is contrast to. But this is the exact place that it occurred. You can go there. You can visit it today. You can sit on those same seats. You can hear what is going on down on the stage floor far below you. And imagine this people, this place packed. I sat there and just imagined what it was like. And Paul wants to run in and explain his gospel to all these people. I mean, what a great opportunity to preach. And they say, you know, it's probably not going to go well, Paul. This is, not the, this is not the time and the place. But there they are, but they are in assembly, in ecclesia, in Acts chapter 19. If you seek anything further, the town clerk is telling them, it shall be settled in the regular assembly where we properly call the citizens together in order to vote and to take action. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting or mostly peaceful protesting here today since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly the ecclesia, those people who'd come out from the hole to rally together around this cause. But they weren't a proper assembly. <clears throat> they weren't a true called out people of a privileged status to act on behalf of and for the benefit of the whole. Now in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word is used typically of assemblies of Israel. It's used alongside another word that's used for gatherings of Israelites is the word synagogue. You've, you've probably heard that word. Synagogue has the, has the um, essential meaning of to gather together. It emphasizes coming together, to gather with. Whereas ecclesia is called out from. You see the difference? We are called out from to gather with, but isn't it interesting that the Spirit of God used this called out from the world as a whole to himself? That's the word he used to describe a gathering of believers. He sets them apart. He makes them different. There's a difference made, a unique privileged people. 
This, this word is also used in Acts chapter 7 when, when, when Stephen refers to the Old Testament, he refers to the church in the wilderness. Now, if you understand, there's a difference between the people of Israel and what God is doing in this, in this gathered out people from all nations today called the church. That's then confusing to have the church in the wilderness. I've got a couple of friends that send me great Bible questions by email now and again. I could take probably a couple more. Not all of you, but a couple more if you wanted to do that. Let's go. But, but I'm, I, I would probably get a question on this. Why is Israel in the Old Testament called the church? I thought there was a difference between Israel and the church. Yes, but God uses the same word because he's referring to Israel called out of Egypt. God redeems and calls out of Egypt, away from Egypt, to himself, a people whom he makes his own unique and privileged people who are called out of the holt in order to worship him and to make him known among all nations. That sounds a lot like what God is also doing today with us, doesn't it? But that's what God did with Israel. He called them out to make them his own. So the word describes that even as Stephen used it. There's a people called out, implication of a difference made, a unique people. This is not just anyone. God has called us out for a unique purpose to himself. Notice that the church is called out by God as God's own possession. It is not just the called out ones. It is the church of God. It is the called out ones of God. Now, that church of God phrase is used several different times through the New Testament, and it normally has a particular emphasis when it emerges. It seems to highlight God's ownership under certain conditions. That this is not just a gathering, this is God's gathering. This is God's collection of people. This is God's calling out together. He is the owner and guardian of the church, for instance, when men might oppose and might persecute. Paul himself says that he was guilty of persecuting the church of God, that it's God's church. He encourages the Thessalonian church in the midst of persecution and being called illegitimate that they are among the churches of God. They are among the true called out ones. Don't fear men. We are called the called out ones of God. He also includes this warning to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that some of them would draw people away to follow them rather than following the Lord. And he warns them to shepherd the church of God. It is God's church, the church of God which he has redeemed with his own blood. It's God's church, not theirs. Sometimes people will ask me, they hear I'm a pastor, they ask me about my church. And I'm relative, I understand what they're saying, but I still often want to get in the, the caveat, just a footnote, you know, it's actually not my church. It's Jesus' church that I have the privilege of being a part of. Paul reminds the Corinthians of that at times when, when he's warning them against just doing things the way that they want to do them, he reminds them of the practices of all of the churches of God. You and I don't get to decide willy-nilly how we want to do things within the church that are comfortable with us or that are according to our preferences because guess what? It's not our church. It's the church of God. 
you know, speaking of my church, when I was, when I was called here and privileged to be the pastor 18 years ago, we had an installation ceremony where they install the pastor. I'm not quite sure where they set him and hook him up, but they install a pastor in a church, right? And in that installation service, the, the elders had, had invited the, the a man who was the director of our church association, our extended church family, for him to come and speak to us, but especially to speak to me, to give me a charge concerning this ministry here that I was entering into. And his charge was out of 1 Peter chapter 5, to shepherd the church of God, which is among you. This is God's church. It's not ours. He is the one who leads us. He is the one who directs us. And we do things God's way rather than our way. Now here in Ephesus, Paul adds a less common descriptor to the church of God. He modifies God as the living God. And this is the point I was making with the kids earlier. God is not just a God. In fact, you can mention God around the world and people will assume you mean different things by that. But there is only one living God. There is only one true and living God. And that's the distinction Paul is making, especially for Paul and the others in Ephesus. He adds the objective, uh, adjective rather, the living God. It's, it's a term, that's, it's, it's a combination that's infrequent in the Old Testament and New Testament, but it shows up as I described in, in David who, who, I come to him in the name of the living God. I don't need armor. I don't need armies. I come in the name of the living God, the one true God. The Assyrian envoy found that out the hard way. And the Assyrian king himself. Not only does God not have empower Hezekiah, but God himself by one angel wipes out that army. But then when the king goes back and in the presence of his own God, who is not living and cannot save him from his own sons. There's the contrast. How dare you, God says, Compare all the other so-called gods of all the nations with the living God. God won't stand for it. Paul specifically in Acts 14, for instance, he urges people to turn from vain idols of the nations to a living God, a God who is alive and active and who will act on our behalf. In Caesarea Philippi, Peter declares in the midst of an idolatrous landscape. There's a temple to, to Caesar Augustus in Caesarea Philippi. There's a temple to, to Nemesis, the god of, goddess of revenge. There's a temple uh, uh, to Pan. There's a, there's a temple to the, of the dancing goats. There's all It's a pagan Disneyland. And there Peter answers the question of Jesus, who do you say that? Who do men say that I am? All kinds of things. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answers it this way. You are the Christ, and he goes on, the son of the living God, doesn't he? There is one true and living God, and he is the God with whom we have to do. It is the living God in Hebrews 3 and in Revelation 7 who is sovereign over judgment and is able to protect his own. And yet, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31... It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands 
of the living God. It is not so fearful to fall into the hands of the gods of the nations. Fear not him who can kill the body, Jesus says, but fear him who can kill and cast the soul into hell fire. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the real God, the absolute God, the living God. And yet it is the living God. Paul says in this very epistle, in fact, in, in 10 verses further, 11 verses in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, that it is the living God who is able to be the Savior of all people, specifically those who will believe in, trust in Jesus. We have a hope. I remember an elder in a church years ago Saying, he said this phrase a lot, and it's, it's woven its way into my thinking. I can still hear him up in front of this little church saying it in his prayer, that we have a hope that goes beyond the grave, that is eternal in the heavens, because we have a living God who is able to save us. He is able to act on our behalf. The living God is alive, not a lifeless idol. When Paul uses this description of God in his letters, the living God, it's because the acrid scent of idolatry is in the air. And it was all over Ephesus. I remember walking down one of the streets in Ephesus and there's one place after another where there's an image of this god or this goddess out of the Greco-Roman pantheon. And there are all kinds of gods. And of course the center, the center of it all was Artemis and the temple of Artemis. This was the crown jewel of Ephesus. It was the center of the region um, religiously, but it was also the center politically and financially. Deposits were made, loans were received from, they controlled land and mortgages and, and, and commercial leases, and the, the financial world was centered around the temple and its deposits as well. There's a picture of what they believe the temple of Artemis looked like. They believe that the, that the image of Artemis, the statue of Artemis, actually fell from heaven to Ephesus, and they were made then the guardians of this lifeless statue. They were going to guard it, protect it, and guard the honor of Artemis, a goddess of fertility. A goddess of prosperity, a goddess that would make them wealthy. Bring not only children, but bring crops and bring, bring good um, production from their flocks and all, all manner of wealth and goodness. And that's what they believe the temple looked like. 60 feet high, those columns. Um, almost 400 feet this way, almost 200 feet the other way. It was the largest temple in the Greek world when it was built. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And here's, the, here's one of the images of Artemis that they found covered in rubble. Artemis needed to be dug up and rescued. And she's still a little worse for wear. Do you, do you want to see what the temple of Artemis looks like today? Okay. We don't know exactly what it looks like because this is all we've got. And that one column was stood back up just to give those who find this lonely, forsaken field with a bunch of marble rubble scattered about it, they wanted to show the, the um, persistent tourist who would find the place how high just one of those columns actually was. And there were 120 of them, I think, in the, in the, um, in the, in the temple. 
So they took the pieces, the cylinders, to put one column back together. And a family of storks is grateful they now live on the top of the one surviving temple of the great, the temple of the great Artemis of Ephesus. But you might say, well, Artemis couldn't keep her temple. But then again, the, the temple of the God of Israel was destroyed in Jerusalem as well, right? Yes, after his death, when the veil itself was rent in two and the way to God was opened up and, and was given to us a new and living way into the presence of God through Jesus, who has gone into the heavenly holy of holies and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and sent the spirit of the living God to dwell in the hearts individually of those who believe in him. And Paul has said that you, church, together, collectively, you are the temple of God. Oh, God's temple continues. I'm looking at it. Not the building as nice as it is but those whom he has called out to himself to be his people among the nations. You see, Artemis, a central figure as she was in Ephesus, central figure in the midst of her column temple, she was a stone-cold lady who couldn't lift a finger to help them. In contrast, the living God guards us, protects us, exalts us more than we ourselves deserve. The living God has given us life, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. He made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. So indeed, we share with the psalmist. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom will I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom then would I be afraid? So the emphasis on the living God, there in Ephesus, as Paul writes to Timothy, who is, in, who is leading the church in Ephesus, as Paul writes to him, this emphasis on living God is in contrast to Artemis and all the other idols. God is different. Mark that down. God is different. God is unique. He is unlike any other. He is holy. When we understand God to be holy, he is pure and separated from sin unlike any other. He is sovereign unlike any other. He is omniscient, all-knowing, unlike any other. He is omnipotent, all-powerful, unlike any other. God is holy. There is none like him. That's what we understand as God has revealed himself to us. The Assyrians ran into that reality. They could handle all the so-called gods of the world. And the demons would compete among themselves. But when they ran into the true and living God, everything changed. He is a God who hears. He heard Hezekiah. And he answers. You know, many of you, in this last week, we got word, Julie and I got word uh, concerning her dad. It looked like he might, he, it seemed from what we were told that he was perhaps in his last day. And we, we, we hurriedly made, made the reservations, a very expensive flight for that very night to go down there and try to be with him before he was gone. And, and we put out word, please be praying. And people were praying for them. And even as you were praying, uh, news came remarkably to us and things had changed. And we've continued to have better reports. He's improving. He's getting better. His, his lungs were clear. He's sitting up. He was able to actually talk to Julie on the phone. 
So that gave us a little more time. And we, we hope, pray for us still, we, we hope to fly standby tonight and to be able to be with him and to visit with him and talk to him again about the living God who is able to save and give life. Our God hears, he answers prayer. He is unique, singular, different, other. His ways are different from all the Greco-Roman gods of the first century era. That those Greco-Roman gods are petty and jealous. They are self-serving and unpredictable. They are reliably faithful only to their own desires. They were gods made in the image of men. Gods and goddesses in the likeness of an exalted humanity. But the living God has made us in his likeness. He's different than any of the other gods around us today. The God of Islam is harsh and not merciful. His followers force submission by violence. Jesus submitted, in contrast, Jesus submitted to violence in order to save us and give us life. The God of Islam is a strict judge who will only be merciful to those whose deeds deserve it. The best way to achieve eternal blessing is to give your life as a martyr for him. But the Son of the living God gave his life for us, to save us. The various animistic and spiritist traditional religions of, the, of Africa or even the Americas, there are lesser spirits under a distant, transcendent God who is far away and not really interested in what's going on in humanity. But our God, who is above all, came near. We just remembered that. Christmas and the nativity and the incarnation where God himself stooped from heaven into humanity and dwelt with us, tabernacled among us. To live with us, to die for us, to lift us, to be with him forever. The living God knows and cares Buddhism has given up on the reality of any living God at all and finds whatever peace they can in the ceasing of life. But the living God came among us to live and live life with us in order to give us eternal life. The living God is unique. He's unique on the world stage. None of those other gods the Assyrians ran into or anything like him. There is none like him. There is no other God. Could I say it this way? God is different. God is different. God is different than even we would imagine he ought to be. And the one true and living God has called you and I out of the world to be set apart to him and his future. We are the called out ones of the true and living God. We are the called out ones by him who is different in order for us to be different with him and for him in his purposes for the world. God who is uniquely different and distinct has called you to be different. The church of the living God are the called out of Ephesus ones. They are no longer who they once were. They are not from there anymore. That's what I titled for myself this, this section or this phrase this time around. Not from there anymore. Because that's true for us as well. What we do on Sunday morning is an expression of the difference that God has made for us. We do things here that are weird in our surrounding culture. Where else do you gather and sing a bunch of songs like we do? 
Songs that are shared and sung by others around the world. Not because they make us feel good or, or just speak to our own experiences about love and loss, but they, we sing about the one who made us and gives us life. Where else do you do something like this? Where do you learn together from an ancient book? Where do you dunk new members as an initiation rite of sort? You dunk them underwater. That's just weird, isn't it? Imagine how odd that is to people that don't come from a church background around you. We, we gather together and we share little tiny portions of a ceremonial meal that, that looks back to a Passover celebration a couple of thousand years ago. Is that not a little odd, a little peculiar? But God, who is unique and different and holy and other, calls us to be, in Peter's words, his peculiar people. We are to be distinct. We are to be different. This struck me yesterday. We stood in a cemetery at the site of a burial. And there, at the time of a burial, we could sing together amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Where else in the world do you sing a song of joyful hope at the time of death? This is a time for mourning and wailing. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope because the living God has made all the difference. When Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he reminds them of the change God has made. You were dead in sin. He made you alive in Christ. You, once you were far off, you've been brought near. Once you were enemies, now you are reconciled. Therefore, no longer walk as the nations do. Put off the old. Put on the new. Put away falsehood. Speak truth. Let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him work with his own hands. Let him give to others instead of taking from them. New. Different. Once you were in darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. God has called us out of this world to himself. God has made a distinction for you to be distinct. God, who is different than any other, has called you and I to be different, to be unique. Be ye holy as God is holy. Different, other. The Ephesian Christians were in Ephesus, but they were not from there anymore. They were the called out ones of the living God. You and I are still in the midst of this culture and community. But we are not of this culture. We are not from there anymore. God has called us out to be different. Well, how should I be different? That now gets to the crux of it, doesn't it? If God, who is different, calls us to be different, has called us out, come out from among them that they may worship me, how then ought we to be different? What will that look like? I'm glad you asked. I'm not going to tell you. You say, oh, good. No, no, I'm going to give you homework. Time's run out. You know how it happens. So I, I want you to press into this seriously. This has been my plan. I want you to, since we're in 1 Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy at Ephesus, I want you to 
Let's start with the book of Ephesians. It's a relatively short book. You could read the whole book in half an hour. I'm going to ask you to go a little slower, take a little more time. Break it into two pieces if you want because you're going to look for two different things. In the first half, in the first three chapters, I want you to read with a pen and paper at hand. And I want you to jot down the difference that God has made. As you find it, when, when you see as you read in those first three chapters, here's a difference God made. Here's a way God has changed everything concerning me. Here's a way that he's made us new. Just jot some of those down. Now, don't do an exhaustive search. You can come back and find new ones again. But Notice the difference that God has made because the difference God has made is the foundation, is the basis upon which you will live new. You will live different. Because now I want you to go on then to the second three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, and there you're going to run into a lot of different ways that we can be different because of the difference God has made. So I want you to then look through how can I now, how should I now live different? Take those notes, jot those down. You're going to see things about self-control. You're going to see things about anger or mercy. You're going to see things about moral choices that you will make. Uh, things that you will not do, you will not participate in. Uh, uh, your speech. The kind of jokes you tell, the kind of jokes you laugh at. The media which you will set before your eyes. The things you watch, the, the way you think about your own marriage, the way you think about parenting, the way you think about responding to your parents. You're going to see calls to be different that are based on the difference that God has made. Now that's step number one. And then I want you to think of someone. Think of someone who's a little further down the trail than you. Somebody who's a little further along, perhaps, in this spiritual walk with God. Think of somebody that you could share some of these things that God has shown you. And talk to them about what God has told you and how you could realistically, actually, truly step into some of this. As they know God, as they know you, how might they advise you in helping you to take a next step in this different that God has called you to? And the third thing I want you to do is to dare to do it. Dare to take that next step in some difference that God calls you to out of his word. And it will not at all be because Bob told you to in church and I worked hard to persuade you of it on Sunday. It will be because the true and living God who dwells in you by His Spirit has spoken to you from His Word and where He leads you must follow. Because it's on His authority, not mine. There are others like me. There are others far better than me. There is none like him. And so he's the one I want you to hear it from. In the, in the, in the relatively new series, The Chosen, there's one line I really like. Now, I'll go ahead and confess this. I have a mixed relationship with The Chosen. One of the things I love about it is the historical accuracy, and you get a feel for the setting. 
they've, they, they've done some of those things really well. I, I, I love some of the fresh takes and new perspective they give us on some of those familiar episodes in the Gospels and what it might have been like. What I'm not so much a fan of is some of the creative license, some of the invention, some of the filling in of the gaps, some of the whole episodes cut out of new cloth. That, and, and the danger, as I see it in that, is there are people who will watch the episode, and because the media is so powerful, they will assume that's actually what is in the Bible when it's not. And maybe it's a good representation, or maybe it's including something that is the, out of our own imaginations that we ought to be a little wary of. But I like this quote. I've seen it on T-shirts around here. I like it. It's, the, it's in one of those episodes where the disciples are remarking that that's really different. And Jesus' response is, get used to different. Wouldn't that be a good thing? If we actually, instead of trying to buy in and be as close to and not so awkward with all the nonsense around us, what if we got used to different? What if we got comfortable with different? What if we called out ones of the true and living God were actually comfortable in His skin and His calling of us to be unique and different and light in the midst of darkness? What would God do? Well, let's pray. Father, there is none like you. We approach you as the true and the living God. And we recognize, Lord, that is our unique and different privilege. Lord, you have called us out to be your own. And you use us now to hold that invitation to others. Lord, who are we for this? And yet this is the different you have done. Oh, Lord, we thank you. Father, we do want you to do your different work in us. We want you to change us, to transform us, to mold us into the likeness that you intend, to use us in the ways for the benefit of those around us who also need to see that you indeed are different, far better than they would have ever imagined. So, Father, would you help us to take the next step, even to follow through that I would dare to consider and hear from you in your word that you would show me your difference. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.